0: All right so we are continuing in our series in First John and today we're actually uh, going to do um, most of our time in First John chapter 2 which, if you've been following along, is a little out of order. Um, we're m- more like in First uh, John four right now, but um, we were supposed to do this talk two months ago in mid January. But uh, we received our son at that time, so sorry, not sorry, that we have to do this a little bit backwards. So we, so it, you know, we can uh, go back. And also, the the topic itself that's covered in chapter two, which we'll read together, is uh, uh, it's pretty intense. So I'm gonna gradually. Bum you out into this passage, and then we will work our way uh, back up from there. Um, I can tell you right now, the, um, this uh, major threat that uh, First John is broadly responding to is a group of false teachers who are um, behaving in such a way that threatens to, to tear their community apart. And so he responds throughout this letter in many different ways. And um, on a very simple level, I think if you hear the, the phrase false teacher, it could make you think that a false teacher is somebody, a teacher, who teaches something that's wrong or false. The problem with that is that by that definition, we would all be false teachers. None of us knows everything uh, perfectly, that is just impossible. It uh, speaks to this, uh, this common uh, quote that many of us go back to that anti Wright has said, 20% of uh, everything I say is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 20%, right? That's, that's the situation we find ourselves in. So it raises this question, okay, well, so if a false teacher isn't just um, somebody who's teaching something that's false, if it's something far more serious than that or more nefarious than that, if there's an element of not just facts that you believe in your head, but behaviors that are the consequence of those beliefs, then what exactly is the problem? And that's what we're going to get at uh, more directly today. So let's read the section uh, of our text uh, in 1 John 2. So it starts, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I don't write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as the anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. So, from this passage that we read, I'm sure that there is one word that stands out to you in particular in that discussion. It's antichrist. It's very powerful. We've been um, uh, kind of hinging some of our uh, lessons in this series around words that you can really anchor on. Uh, Pastor Kevin did one uh, early in the series about the word sarx, which means flesh, and what it means for God to be fleshy and for the Christian faith to be fleshy. Uh, Pastor Danielle did the, uh, the word agape, which is love. A deep kind of love that is embodied in Jesus. And now we're at our Greek word, Antichristos. It's basically, it's Antichrist. You don't need to translate it very much. It, it makes sense as it is. Just that, just a beautiful word, right? Just really, really <laughs> in, encourages you to, to think about the text. Um, these, this is what I've been thinking about in my first two months uh, spending time with our new son, and um, there, you, the, the this is all the more shocking the the kind of visceral reaction you may have from hearing this word, given how rarely this particular word occurs in the entire Bible. Um, it is mentioned four times in First John, and um, and that's about it as far as it goes. There are several figures in the Bible, though, that have been linked to the Antichrist uh, over the the millennia that followers of Jesus has existed. And I'm sure that you'd be familiar with at least some of them. So, for example, the Gospel of Matthew has Jesus describing a time when false messiahs will come. There is, in that same context, Jesus mentions the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, there is uh, another one called the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions, which I'm always surprised to see that even gender neutral translations still call them man of lawlessness because uh, that's kind of sexist if you think about it because women can antichrist too. hashtag feminism. <laughs> There are a bunch of other figures as well. There's, uh, there's the little horn that's mentioned in Daniel, which is uh, one of many horns on top of a beast's head. And that horn um, has the eyes of a human and an arrogant mouth is how it's described. These, these visions, are they get pretty interesting. There's the beast from the sea uh, in Revelation. There's another beast, a beast from the earth also mentioned, which is equated to the false prophet. There is Apollyon, the destroyer, that's mentioned in Revelation as well. There's Vigo, the Carpathian from Ghostbusters chapter 2. The point is, there's a bunch of figures all over the place. And it's very easy to look at all of these different descriptions and try to smash them together into one coherent narrative that points out an individual figure in history or in your current context and point to them as the source of everything that's wrong and everything that's antagonizing the Jesus movement. Uh, understandably so, over the millennia, uh, followers of Jesus have taken basically whoever you despise uh, at the time in your life and made the Bible fit. Uh, that The description to say that person is the Antichrist. Uh, many of us in, uh, in the room are Protestants, so we have a, a history of calling every pope since the Protestant Reformation the Antichrist and making Bible passages fit that. Um, in an American context, there have been different times where Christians have said that the, the uh, European Union is the uh, Antichrist or every president uh, ever, basically. It would be uh, certainly in your lifetime, you probably heard people make a case for Obama being the Antichrist or Donald Trump being the Antichrist. And I know that, that you know we can laugh and say, oh, that's so funny. But the, the reality is is that I'm sure if somebody made an impassioned case using Bible references, to say that the president that you hate is the Antichrist. By the end of that case, you'd be like, yes, I see that. That's very good. We have now determined the Antichrist. It's very easy. It's very easy to take somebody you hate and project onto them all of these different passages but we're called to something a little more nuanced and thoughtful than that. What ends up happening is we can take all of these images and all these people that we don't like, and we can smash it together, and we're trying to calculate the systematic story of who the Antichrist is. And it's important to remember in discussions like this that the Bible is a library, not a book. That means all of those different different instances I gave you of different people who have been associated with the Antichrist. Those phrases and names and descriptions occur in all different genres of literature. There was a letter to a specific church, a letter circulated to a group broadly, there were a couple different apocalypses, there was a gospel, right? There are all different kinds and you need to resist the urge to treat them all equivalently and group it all together. We have to take each one in context to understand them at their own time, in their own space, and let the author tell you what they're describing. So that's what we're going to do with 1 John today. We are going to talk about uh, who are these antichrists, what was so dangerous about them in that context, and how those dangers carry over to today. And I think we're going to be able to make good sense of this highly charged phrase that you may come across. So to start this, we should talk about uh, as much as we can understand about this group that John is afraid of or that he is very concerned about uh, in first John, so there's a a group of people um, in uh, the early church, so this is uh, a couple centuries after first John would have written, so by the third or fourth century, it appears historically that we have a full blown religion that 's basically uh, an offshoot that is separated from what we would call traditional or orthodox Christianity. And a lot of its uh, core beliefs revolve around having special access and special knowledge about Jesus— that the apostles themselves didn't have, that the apostolic tradition didn't have. Because it revolves around this special knowledge, there, uh, historians call that group Gnostics after the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. So this, um, so th- there's, this is this you know, philosophical way of thinking and, and understanding the world that was very much at odds with apostolic Christianity in the first couple centuries. And so what historians kind of do is when, what they see in places like First John, is an author like John responding to some of the early phases of Gnosticism, of those kinds of beliefs that prioritize this special access, this special knowledge to Jesus that runs counter to the teachings of Jesus as handed down by the apostolic community. So a key tenet of this other group, this group that John would, would describe as Antichrist, is this idea that access to God is exclusive that there are a certain group of people who have a monopoly on truth and knowledge, where they would say, you may have heard one thing about Jesus and uh, from Jesus' disciples and his disciples' disciples, but we have something better. We have special knowledge that is superior, it's elite, and it's exclusive. And this is where understanding apostolic tradition and the weight of tradition can be super helpful. Because uh, I I understand that tradition— if we just mention it, especially in this context, it can seem very restrictive and binding. Uh, but in the case of 1 John, it's actually very freeing. And I think we need to think through that because I understand you are probably like me. you uh, Your mind has been steeped in a very Western, rugged, individualistic, Protestant mindset your whole life. So you only know how to grate against tradition and throw Boston tea parties and write your own constitutions and all that kind of stuff. It's in the air that we breathe. To grate against a received tradition. And I get it. Even like me personally, I just have this bias where if I hear an argument and there is an appeal to tradition, my instinct is to not believe that thing specifically because that argument is given. And, and I can understand then if somebody were to say, hey, um, the big problem with these, uh, these antichrists, these Gnostic-style teachers, is that they were diverging from the tradition. You could say, well, what's, what's the big deal about that? Maybe they had some good ideas that other people hadn't thought before. The problem is, uh, is that uh, you know you can look at that and you can even say that First John in saying like those that group of people they went out from us because they didn't belong to us kind of gives this vibe of exclusivity, right? That they they hate us because they hate us. That's why they they're not here anymore. And um, there is an irony here because there is a kind of very dangerous. Hatred or rejection of what it means to be human, what it means to be Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, going on in these antichrists that John is actually trying very hard to protect his community against so that they can be free from the burdens and insecurity that comes from having the beliefs and the concomitant behaviors that these antichrists are teaching. The apostolic tradition resoundingly will say that access to God is inclusive. That is a core teaching reflected in so many of the historic creeds, right? Like these are formulations that Christians have done throughout the centuries that kind of try to get everybody to uh, agree on and think critically about what it means in essence to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. And it's an articulation of various beliefs, the Apostolic Creed being one of the most famous ones, one of the earliest ones, one of the ones that get widespread recitation in a lot of churches today. And so when John says things like, you know the truth, you don't need anyone to teach you, you have an anointing from the Holy One which has taught you all things, he's trying to free them from the seeds of insecurity sown by these false teachers. He's calling you to go back to this tradition that was handed down from Jesus himself to say, um, this is where you can find true freedom. John uses the phrase, from the beginning. That's that's the the teaching that he's asking them to hold on to. That's the truth. That is a phrase, from the beginning, an appeal to what Jesus's followers learned um, that not only John makes. Paul does that several times in his writings. Uh, Peter does it. Jude does it as well. And it's no coincidence that often when they have to appeal to this this tradition. They're doing it in the face of false teachers who are saying they have a better, more exclusive access to what the Jesus story is about. And the reality is there will be lots of people in your life or maybe even the voices in your own head who will try to make you feel insecure about your faith, like you don't really know enough to say you know Jesus. You don't know enough. You don't do enough to really say you know Jesus. Who are you to speak on behalf of God? Do you know what I know? Your faith is incomplete. Your access to God is limited until you buy what I'm selling. There were people like that back then. There are people like that today. There will always be people like that. Don't listen to that garbage. There is no one person or one group that has a monopoly on God's truth. It is inclusive. It is for everyone. And according to John, it is something you already have. You're part of the great tradition. Today, uh, some of us were blessed to be present for Yutong's baptism. This beautiful event is an initiation into God's family, and we were able to witness it and celebrate it together. John would want you to anchor on an event like that, to say that that is my anointing. That is when God poured out God's Spirit onto me. That is when I joined the family. Nobody can take that away from me. When we confess Jesus, when we were baptized into Jesus, when we receive the spirit, we know Jesus, remain in it, is what John would say. Now, distancing God from humanity severely distorts our understanding of the very nature of God and Jesus as well. It's a logical consequence of the kinds of beliefs and practices that this group that John is worried about has one of the biggest problems in the way that this group would conceive of God uh, will sound familiar based on Pastor Kevin's lessons. It's this idea, the idea that God is above fleshly, fleshy affairs. So at the heart of the Antichrist teaching is basically that Jesus is too good, too God, to, be, uh, to have actually come in the flesh. And although our great tradition has rightly um, argued against uh, this idea that, you know, Jesus is too good or, or too God to be human. Uh, in fact, this tradition has pointed out that God is in those fleshy affairs of this world. That is what the incarnation of Jesus is all about. Even though we've done a great job at laying that out, still, this idea that god is too good or that jesus is too good and too god to be a part of humanity in any real way has crept in to our thoughts and our actions in so many ways I think it is best embodied in the image of Jesus that many of us walk around with, and that is a Superman Jesus. That is a Jesus where we've increasingly detached him from his humanity. And sure, we say Jesus was both God and man, but then we make him into an image of what we think power is like. And so we give him, uh, uh, white skin, gorgeous abs. I know I mentioned Jesus's abs, like in every other lesson. It's just, every time I look away from it, I just keep getting pulled back in. How, how does he have time to die for my sins and do all those crunches? This doesn't make sense. And this is the Jesus that we have. I love his abs. I love those shoulders. He's so great. He could do so many things. He can probably fly if he wanted to. And this is the problem is that this has crept into our theology and how we understand people are as well. Because uh, everything about Jesus screams turning power on its head in the way we traditionally think about it. But this community, this community of Gnostics with special knowledge by the third or fourth centuries had produced a full-blown set of literature that really ran with the idea that Jesus is above humanity. And it kind of takes the way we think of Superman Jesus even further, because there are Gnostic writings that articulate a Jesus who is a super kid Jesus and Super Baby Jesus. These are the kinds of stories that they have because when you have an idea of Jesus basically never being human, even from the time he was born, then you can create stories like this kind of community has. That was, by the way, the least creepy picture of Superman Baby Jesus that I could find. But it's right. It should be creepy. You should feel uncomfortable looking at it because the idea is very uncomfortable. There is um, there's uh, examples from these gnostic writings that a couple. years ago around Christmas time, uh, Vice did an article about some of what these other writings will teach you about baby and kid Jesus. Um, it, it includes examples in, in this literature of, um, you know, uh, baby kid Jesus um, that getting bumped by somebody in the street and turning around and striking that kid dead, uh, seeking retaliation for uh, people blaspheming against him when he was a baby, like literally a few days old. There's just so many ways where you can see what's happening in this literature, the reason that it had so much play uh, in this community was that it gave them a chance to articulate a Jesus who did all the things that they wanted to do to their enemies. That's what happens when we don't anchor on a Jesus that is vulnerable and human in an, a painfully uncomfortable way, because the Jesus that we 've received from the apostolic tradition is one that 's far more offensive than these stories that you 're reading. The Jesus that we receive is one that is thoroughly human, one that is vulnerable, uh, painfully so. We have examples of young Jesus uh, the Gospel of Luke shows uh, describes young Jesus as somebody who grows in wisdom that necessarily implies that in Jesus' life, he had to learn what it meant to follow Jesus. He wasn't born knowing everything about God. Uh, there's also the fact that even Jesus in his ministry admitted that he didn't know the exact time and date of the judgment that was on Israel's horizon and that it wasn't up to him to decide uh, who sits on his right hand uh, when, uh, when he returns. So um, uh, you know, continuing that when confronted with his own mortality, remember when Jesus was in the garden, he feverishly prayed to God repeatedly to create a path of victory that didn't involve his crucifixion. And when he realized there was no other way in the midst of experiencing excruciating agony, in execution. He channeled the Psalms to interrogate God and ask, why have you forsaken me? That is a Jesus who doesn't have it all together in the way that we traditionally think that he does. Now, he knows everything. He's got it all figured out. God came down to him and said, hey, I'm going to need you to die for the sins of Israel. Then I'll raise you up again in three days. We good? Jesus said, we good. No, that is not at all the Jesus that is portrayed in the gospels. He has to wrestle with what he believes the mission is that God is revealing for him. If he prayed in the garden for God to come up with a different way, that means Jesus genuinely believed that maybe God could figure out an entirely different story for how it is that he's going to reconcile the universe. That is what Jesus was having to figure out on the fly. Does any of this sound inherently superhuman to you? No, it sounds thoroughly human. In fact, it sounds extremely consistent with the way followers of Jesus have articulated Jesus's humanity from the very beginning. It sounds extremely consistent with a divine force that let go of humanity. This is how Paul articulates it in Philippians 2 in what's considered one of the earliest Christian poems, one that even predates him. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." That is the Jesus that sets the term for what power looks like and is very different from the kind of power we're tempted to attribute to God. Uh, Shane Claiborne is a great author and uh, pictured here imitating the beard and hair of the early church fathers uh, quoted once uh, he describes this really well where he says, I have a friend in the UK who talks about dirty theology. For our purposes, you can even think of that as fleshy theology, that we have a God who is always using dirt to bring life and healing and redemption, a God who shows up in the most unlikely and scandalous ways. After all, the whole story begins with God reaching down from heaven, picking up some dirt and breathing life into it. At one point, Jesus takes the mud, spits in it, and wipes it on a blind man's eyes to heal him. The priests and producers of anointing oil were not happy that day. In fact, the entire story of Jesus is about a God who did not just want to stay out there, but who moves into the neighborhood, a neighborhood where folks said nothing good could come. It is this Jesus who was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a rabble rouser for hanging out with all of society's rejects and who died on the empirical cross of Rome reserved for bandits and failed messiahs. This is why the triumph over the cross was a triumph over everything ugly we do to ourselves and to others. It is the final promise that love wins. It is this Jesus who was born in a stank manger in the middle of a genocide. That is the God we are just as likely to find in the streets as in the sanctuary, who can redeem revolutionaries and tax collectors, the oppressed and the oppressors, a God who is saving some of us from the ghettos of poverty and some of us from the ghettos of wealth. This twisted, overly elevated idea of Jesus distorts not only our understanding of God, but our understanding of ourselves too. It's perhaps best embodied in a mantra that John is directly responding to in this letter. It's this idea, I have no sin. So many of you might recognize this famous uh, line from, from this letter where um, where John will say, Whoever says that is in serious danger. It runs counter to the apostolic tradition. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have not thought through critically the context of what that means for somebody to say I have no sin and why that would be dangerous, you might think that uh, what John is responding to is basically don't be arrogant, right? Somebody who says I have no sin will say what that person is saying is they're perfect um, and that uh, they don't have to acknowledge any of their mistakes. And that's not actually what John is responding to, that although arrogance clearly can be a problem among false teachers, that's not what concerns him the most in this case. It is the idea of somebody who says, I have no sin. They're saying that in John's context as a logical outcome of saying, if God is above suffering and brokenness, then an enlightenment means me becoming more like God. Well, then I have to become above brokenness and suffering in this world. It's unbecoming to live in a humanity that embraces and leans into addressing the brokenness and suffering that exists in this world. This is where, uh, at the heart of John, uh, saying in this letter to defining the antichrist, he says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard is coming. And even now has come into this world. This is the connection. You deny that Jesus came in the flesh because you are creating a God that is not about entering into human affairs and entering into brokenness and sinfulness. The early church father, Irenaeus, uh, responded to this really well. So this is actually a writing from the turn of the first century. That means we are just one generation out from the people who would have written the letters that have made it into our New Testament. And you can see how he's having to address these kinds of false teachers that John is talking about. Irenaeus says, Jesus was truly of the race of David, according to the flesh, but son of God by the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin and baptized by John, truly nailed up uh, in the flesh. He suffered truly. Also, he raised himself truly. Not as certain unbelievers say that he suffered in semblance, right? Irenaeus has to clarify, no, no, no. The Jesus story is not that he just looks like he suffered which is actually a teaching that we find in these Gnostic writings. The idea that, oh yeah, yeah, you may have heard from the disciples and the disciples, disciples that Jesus died on the cross. But I'm telling you, I have a special revelation from God that says that wasn't real. It didn't really happen. He just looked like he was suffering on the cross because far be it for God or a true Messiah to actually suffer and die at the hands of enemies. No, Irenaeus is saying, no, 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 he didn't look like he suffered. He actually suffered. That's how the Jesus game works. We don't say as followers of Jesus that suffering is a state of mind or that suffering is an illusion. We're not like politicians who say poverty to a large extent is also a state of mind or like musicians who say that 400 years of slavery in America is a choice. We don't even stop at I hear your pain, or I feel your pain. We walk with people in their pain. We enter into people's pain. We channel God to empower us to break into people's pains and tear down people's pain. That is what it means to follow Jesus. That is an appropriate Christian tradition, that is our attitude towards sin and suffering. We don't tell people that the consequence, uh, of the, the consequences of the brokenness that they're experiencing is all in their head, and they can just positive think that w- their way out of it. Followers of Jesus have, from the beginning, recognized that the struggle is real. In our community, in particular, here in the Bay Area, it's easy to reflect on how good things are. Uh, You may have a nice spouse, a nice house, nice kids um, in a nice neighborhood, nice job, nice school, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, it's so tempting to think that you have all of this because you're so good. You're so talented. You're above what plagues the rest of humanity. And when those in abject suffering do tend to cross your minds from time to time, it's easy to think even a little bit which we're all tempted to do, that other people have it bad because in some part it's because they're bad and they make bad choices and you don't. Thank God the Jesus story does not work that way. And John doesn't leave it there either. In calling out that the struggle is real, he also points out that the anointing is real too. That's what he says in, in response. He would say the anointing is real, not counterfeit. And it's something that you already have. This, this language that he uses, the anointing, literally anointing means Messiah. It's the same word for Messiah or Christ. We're talking about the same thing. So it's basically saying, but you have, you've been Messiahed. It's that his way of saying that it means to be blessed, to be set apart. For John, being Messiahed means being empowered to respond to sin and suffering exactly the way that Jesus did with love and sacrifice and unrelenting compassion. Sometimes there are forces in this world, out there, within our own community, within ourselves, that want to tear this family that we have apart. They want to tear us apart from within ourselves by tempting us to move God away, further away from us, to make God less accessible, to make Jesus less relatable, to make suffering less real. But we have everything we need to resist those instincts, those impulses, and those voices. After all, we have, as John would say, we have the truth. We have the anointing. We have the truth faithfully passed down to us from generation to generation, originating from Jesus himself. We have God's own spirit blessing us, pushing us to supernatural levels of sacrifice and compassion to a broken world. We have God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. We have Christ Jesus, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died and was buried who descended to the dead on the third day. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, spoken from the Apostles' Creed from centuries ago, carried down to us today. We have everything. Let's see what we can do with what we have. We're now going to take this time. To transition into communion. Um, We're going to come together as a family to partake of bread and juice that symbolizes Jesus's body and blood. Um, This is an expression of truth from the great tradition that we've been talking about, that followers of Jesus have been doing, quote, from the beginning. Uh, This um, comes from Jesus himself, where on the night he was arrested, uh, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please rise if you are able for benediction. May you, friends, fix your eyes and your life around the true Christ, grounded in this earth, formed in this flesh and blood, who enters into our pain and our suffering, all of our sin, to bring redemption and healing and hope and reconciliation and rescue. May we embrace and be embraced by that Christ. In his name we pray, amen.